Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these things I've mentioned, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that Christ is our Savior. We confidently understand and apprehend and comprehend with all the saints your love for us, its depth, its width, its breadth, the vastness of it, the, the riches of your glory given to us through Christ Jesus, Father, the, the fullness of all that you have revealed in him, Lord, standing before us through the pages of your scripture as we are guided as your people by your spirit to understand and to rest and rest and rejoice and repeat in the sufficiency of your promises for us, your people, in Christ Jesus, your Son, whom you have sent to destroy death. And so, Lord, we are your people. We display your name. We are a light shining in darkness. And we are so by your power, by your love, by your mercy, by your everlasting and eternal grace to whom you have given us to Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, we now are your children because you have said it so. You have made it so. You have declared it so. And in your power you have proven it. And you have made provision for righteousness in Jesus Christ. In his death that we no longer stand guilty before you. And in his life that we shall be like him forevermore. In his name we pray. Guide us to all truth. Teach us these things in his name. Amen. Well, we've spent some time dealing with peace. We've spent some time dealing with what the gospel is and what grace is. And beloved, if we were to, again, take a poll and, and say, is there any of us here today that has a reason not to be at peace? We would all have a reason. Some of us would have two. Some of us would have a thousand. Some of us could not find a reason for us not to have peace. Some of us would have no way of finding peace if we were to truly evaluate how we feel and think and perceive the world around us. But where our peace rests is in the sufficiency and the power and the essence and the person of God. The Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, the three persons who are one, who are one being, who are one God, who are one essence who are revealed in the glory, the perfection of who He is in the Son, Jesus Christ, who became 
human and dwelt among us. We've not come here this morning for parlatries and niceties and to feel like we've done our Christian duty, though it is. We've not come here this morning to appease the wrath of God, for it has already been appeased to the death of Christ. We've not come here this morning to gain jewels and crowns, thinking that if we are doing certain things, then we will, we will be greater in the kingdom, for Jesus is clear in his teaching to the sons of thunder, right? To their mothers. For he who is going to be great must be nothing. That is the mind of Christ. Brother Queller prayed for us to have and be taught the mind of Christ this morning. We've sung about the mind of Christ. We've heard the scripture from the mouth of Christ. And today we're going to continue to learn that our peace is rested in the sufficiency of God's promises because of Christ. And beloved, that's why we're here. To be taught and reminded of these things so that the application of this deep theology will bring us to a place of joy and satisfaction. And most importantly, that our unity will be in Him and nothing else. That our joy will be found in Him and nothing else. If there's anything else we need in the context of our Christian life than Christ, we are missing the point of it. See, those statements like that beg the thinker to go, well, what about? And that's okay. There are a lot of what abouts. We have been given all things in Christ. We've been given the assembly. We've been given the apostles. We've been given the prophets. We've been given the elders. We've been given the church. We've been given the word of God. We've been given the spirit. We've been given the spirit through which we cry, Papa. Because we've been adopted by him. Prepared, as Paul would teach the church of Colossae, prepared to receive the inheritance of light. We have been qualified with all the saints. How? Because of what we are and what we know and how well we do? No, because of who Christ is and what He has finished. And Paul has very simply Established in verse 2 here that Timothy is his true child, that possessive, my child, true child in the faith. And then this expression of mercy in the midst of grace and peace, so that we would see that the tone of Paul's writing is not a tone of chastisement, it's not upset with Timothy because of what's going on in Ephesus. He's not angry with the elders because there are things happening that aren't handled. He's not frustrated that false teaching is absolutely taking place in Ephesus. Beloved, if there are people, and there is more than one of them, and their brain is working, there is a false opinion among them. Some of you go, no, there's not. See, you're false. <laughs> There are always going to be false opinions. But the apostles demand by the authority of Christ. He is the apostle of Christ. The holy one that God has sent. Not of man. Not of the church. Not of any other person. Not of his own free will. Not of anything but the command of Christ. He is 
Christ's messenger so that when Paul writes to the church, we heed the words. You know, my old funnies is that I say, if a cat stands before you and meows out the scripture, we are bound to hear it. And as those who are indwelt by the Spirit, we are bound to heed it. And I thought of another one this week. If you're driving through the city and a bunch of pigeons drop a plop on your windshield and that plop through your windshield wipers produces a portion of scripture printed on your windshield, the plop drop Bible has authority over you. You must hear it. That's absurd, isn't it? But I want to show you, it doesn't matter if the devil himself speaks the truth of Christ. It is the truth of Christ. But that's not the devil's business to make much of truth, is it? The devil's business is to take truth, change it. How much? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. All it takes is a little bit. For those of you who like to shoot long range or short range, you shoot handguns, that four-inch barrel, without even being able to see it with the naked eye, just a little bit of change can be 30 feet at 100 yards. Just a little bit of change here in the truth could be completely false. Paul, in his writing to the church of, churches of Galatia, he was angry. Was he angry at the church? No. Was he angry at the elders? Absolutely not. Who was he angry with? Those who insisted on others hearing their point of view concerning a doctrinal position that the Bible did not teach. What was he angry over? That they had error? No, their insistence. It caused fear amongst the body of Christ, who of all people ought to have peace that surpasses all understanding. Amongst themselves, they ought not to be in discord. But self-appointed divine men went into Galatia as God himself and has orchestrated a coup to upset the apple cart, if you will, and cause so much fear that grown men would be willing to circumcise themselves. That's some scary stuff. Mutilating the flesh. Because you fear the wrath of God. When the gospel, the good report is that God has mutilated the flesh of his son instead. Beloved, we are here this morning to be corrected. We are here this morning to learn what elders must be doing. We are here this morning to read these personal, mercy-filled, peace empowered letters that Paul wrote to his spiritual son. His spiritual son. So that you, the body, may know what I and the other elder brothers of this church are bound to. Not just what, but how. And in what manner and with what attitude. Beloved, then when we learn these things, we are literally learning Christ. Because only Christ is the true shepherd. Only Christ is the perfect lover. Only Christ is the greater husband. Only Christ is the true teacher.
And because God has in his sovereign grace, his loving kindness, eternally to his people, reached out to his elect ones and shown them the truth, because he has shown such compassion and mercy, then the elders of the church must overly compensate in that same direction. That's why, as we'll see throughout these letters, we'll see where a, an elder must not be given into fits of rage. But yet the culture says, a man gets it done. Slings a fit, screams in people's faces, makes a mockery of it. Do you know when we jest about sin, it's wicked? When we laugh about those who sin, it's a sin in itself. When we have memes that make us chuckle, and we chuckle. We live in a world where my great-grandparents, my great-aunts and uncles that I grew up knowing, some of them who lived over a century, would have died if they had seen some of what we call humorous today. They would have died. And the young people are, oh, they're just boomers. They were beyond. They were before boomers. They were seedlings. <laughs> you know. <laughs> they birthed the ones who birthed the boomers. <laughs> you know? But the point I'm making is that we, we have come to the point where it is endearing to be a rear end. To be, to be bold means to be crass. To tell the truth means to... Hurt anything along the way as long as truth is at the bottom of it. And beloved, that is the work of Satan. It's the work of Satan because the Bible teaches us that it is. And don't take my word for it. Hear the word of the Lord. And Paul is writing this letter with mercy as the meat. Why? Because he's not upset with Timothy. He's not upset with the church of Ephesus. He's not even upset with Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he calls out of that group of certain individuals, you see. There's a lot of people at work here. Two men upset the apple cart of Ephesus and started suggesting false things, and many people took root either to say, I think it makes some sense, or I'm not having it, so everybody starts dividing. And Paul said, when you divide, it's of the flesh. But the Puritan, self-righteous, mongrels, well, I shall not participate with such wickedness. I depart from thee. Come out from ye. You see how silly that sounds? I do it in that old style because it is a mocking of that. And yet we laugh at that. I think it's humorous. Let's mock. Let's mock their eat. You see what I mean? It's just natural. What did Paul teach us to do? Mock it? No. Paul teaches us not to mock it. So as you are guilty, I am guilty. I mean, how many little tiny slurs have I thrown from the pulpit about certain things in a way that makes us sort of laugh, but yet if it were not for God's everlasting love for us, we would not know the truth. It's not funny when people stand in condemnation. And it's not merciful to be even angry and bold about it. Paul is writing this letter and he's reminding Timothy of the mercy of the Father, the true Father. See, God is our true Father. But we have fatherly and, and, and motherly relationships in this world. 
through DNA, through birth, through relationships, and through spiritual things. And so mercy, by definition, as we've learned, is to be warm, is to be compassionate, is to be empathetic, is to sympathize, is to have affection, is to understand tenderness, is, is to help in times of need or comfort in times of misery. I mean, what does comfort look like in your misery? What does the mercy of the Lord look like? We sung it today that he's just there. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes it's not about orchestrating all the answers. Sometimes it's not about getting the whiteboard out and all the brethren and pounding through the ends of it all. Sometimes it's just showing up and saying, I love you in the Lord. And y'all know as well as I do, we have experienced a lot of legalistic unbelief in our midst over the last 10 years where people who walk with us in the doctrines of truth walk away from us in the applications of truth. Some of them, yes, into gross sin and neglect and others into self-righteousness. They know better. They are beyond correction. And beloved... This letter is written to the elders, to the elder, now to the elders of all the churches that we may learn how to handle these things. That's what this letter is all about. And there are some who would say that we aren't to deal with these little things about how to handle false teachers or how to handle disagreements, that we are to just move right on over those things and just keep on talking about Christ. But beloved, to omit those things and to preach only Christ is to omit Christ because in the therefores they are hinged on the this is who he is now this is who you are in him therefore this is what I want you to do and we like to hear the word antinomian and we like to hear the word legalist and all this kind of stuff antinomianism is just another legalism it's just another law by which someone lives. It's another regulation or exterior condition that is binding the church. Nobody can ever get it right. You ever known those people? That no matter what you say, it's never right. Even when you mimic their very words, it's not enough because they don't believe you. Because they have been given the mind of Christ and, and the divine essence of Christ to become God to know you. I just described every marriage in history, <laughs> didn't I? I know what you're saying, but I know what you really mean. I mean, you know, we might not say it, but we think it. I am so sorry. No, you're not. That's what we say in our minds. If you were sorry, you wouldn't have done it. If you're sorry, you wouldn't have said it. You'd have picked your socks up yesterday. I mean, you know, simple. See the stupid stuff we fight over? And I'm not going to equate who Christ is in doctrinal error with not picking up your socks. My beloved, in all manners, in all things, the manner is mercy. The manner is kindness. The manner is comfort. Comfort. An injured animal will attack you if you slap it. A broken arm, you don't pull it off and throw it into a fire. You wrap it up and hold it tight to the body. But why is it so natural for broken arms and wounded animals to just flee? Because that's what we do. 
And then God's word comes in for those who have ears to hear and teaches us differently. So we come and we learn what mercy is all about. Paul is writing this letter with a heart of mercy to his true child in the faith. To his true child in the faith. This is intimate, supernatural affection birthed from the intimate, true affection of God toward Paul and the intimate, true affection of God toward Timothy in Christ Jesus. And in all these things, the spirit of peace through Jesus Christ from God the Father, all these first two verses, this is the glue that holds everything we're going to learn over these next months together. And it is all of grace. The idea of mercy, as he's writing this, I urge you, as I was, going to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus. Because, you know, Timothy traveled with Paul. Timothy was sent to go get John Mark and to bring back books when Paul was, you'll see it in the second letter, when Paul was dying in prison. And Dr. Luke, the physician, was with him, tending to him. And they wrote some letters and they they did some things and they got some instruction to the churches. So Timothy was not just the elder of the churches in Ephesus. He also was Paul's companion for a long, long time. And, you know, people who we're close to and we love, we like to travel with and be with. But the time for Timothy was to stay. This is what I trained you for, Timothy. I need you to stay. I need you to stay. I need you to do what you've been called to do as an elder, which is to put in order that which remains, just like we see in Titus. Tiny Titus. And so Paul is writing in the nature of God the Father's merciful love toward his people in the revelation of Christ and his merciful love to his people in the teaching of the apostles. Paul now is in his merciful love also now encouraging his young son who is the elder of Ephesus to have peace. And to be at peace in all these troubled times. So Paul commands Timothy to stay. As an elder, Timothy's role is to put in order the things that are out of place. And specifically, these false teachers. Now keep in mind that Paul could have written some letters like he did to Corinth. And Paul could have written some letters. But this internal circumstances now, by this time, where established elders are present. What does Paul say? Paul tells the elders that are local to deal with the circumstances locally. Because that's, that's God's instruction. We don't call the Atlanta office of a missionary entity and get some expert to come down here who doesn't even know my middle name to pop in and make assessment. There's a lot of professional assessments in the Christian church. And uh, most all of them are not biblical. I'm not saying they're not good advice. But as we've always learned, if we're going to see God's promises fulfilled, we need to prescribe to God's promises. (laughs) And how are they found in the scripture? So Paul says, I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Remain there. Why? So that you may charge... See, we like that word, don't we? Especially the men in the room. I charge you, heretic. I mean, you know, you've seen the old British films, church history. You've seen John Wycliffe's film, right? You've seen uh, 
Luther, you've seen his little speech and a German-English accent. You've seen these movies. And we want to be like that. We want to be the cardinal standing there. Heretic. But God has not told any church member or any elder to hold that role. Elders, he said, charge these certain persons, plural, not to teach other teachings, different teachings. The word doctrine is the word teaching. So not to teach different teachings. See, elders as recipients of mercy, Timothy as a recipient of mercy from Christ was also now a recipient of mercy from an apostle. And elders then must be merciful in all ways and in all circumstances. It is the essence of pastoral leadership. True pastoral leadership, true pastoral headship emulates the, pa the pastoral headship, the shepherding headship of Christ. Though he was God, he did not take equality with God, something to be grasped, and made himself nothing, obedient unto death on a cross as a slave. Now, we don't impart this idea that elders are like Christ because they are equal with God. No, but the essence of his heart and his mind must be shared amongst his people. And it's not just elders, it's the church as well. The pastors may be in charge of certain things and in charge of oversight and in charge of correction, but they're not the boss men of the church. They're the first leaders. They're the first to be held responsible. They're the first to repent. They're the first to forgive. They're the first to forbear. They're the first, and what do I mean by that? The leader shows everybody else what to do and where to do it. Follow the leader. Remember we were doing that since preschool. That's what leaders do. Leaders aren't in charge standing around pointing fingers. Leaders are walking and everybody else is following. Beloved, follow me as I follow the example of Paul who followed the example of Christ. And when I detract from that, when the other elder brothers of any church detract from that, when we start getting worldly, then just don't go there. Don't follow that. And maybe there's a relationships enough in the body of Christ of intimacy, not things that are contrived, not programs, not opportunities, not projects that we put together. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. We don't come as a body and make people love each other. But as we're able, as we're gifted, we love in those ways and we do so with mercy. Elders must be merciful. And this local elders, elders who oversee and teach the body are equipped by the word of God and by the spirit of God to inquire and correct with love and more importantly, or as important, with self-interest. Now, what does that mean? See, that, sounds, that sounds bad. Timothy had an interest in these people because he loved them. He didn't love them in a sense of like, you know, I love all peoples of the world. I love all Christians of the world. I love this man that I've never met because he is my brother in Christ. That's great. The people who we've walked through fire with, People who we've sat around on the couch and sat outside in the car and wept with and prayed with and prayed for and taught and labored and stayed up all night worrying about, there's an interest there. That's called an investment. The elders of the local church are better suited to deal with patiently 
and calmly and mercifully the issues that arise in the local assembly. Outsiders are not welcome ever in the midst of those issues, ever. Let me say that again, ever. <laughs> and when they come in, Paul has something to say about that, don't they? doesn't he? Because what do they do? They capture people. They capture their attention. They capture their heart. And what does that do? It creates fear. Anytime we are operating out of fear, frustration, anger, selfishness, it is not of the spirit. It is always of the flesh. And we should not be making decisions in those areas of emotions. We make decisions based on what the scripture tells us boldly. In black and white, in its context, not in its theoretical argumentation. There's a place for inference. There's a place for organized, systematized use of understanding the whole of Scripture. But that whole is easily manipulated. Elders, the local elders. God has ordained this. And he does not welcome intrusion from other congregations or other presbyteries or other uh, associations. This ideology is unbiblical, and it produces suspicion, and I believe it produces a sterility of intimacy. It sterilizes us, makes us cold and clinical. So what does he charge Timothy with? He charges him to charge others. Now, I use the word charge. He charges Timothy. What is a charge? A charge is a quest. A charge is a comment. A charge is an accusation sometimes. But he didn't say destroy. He didn't say ruin. He said certain individuals, I want you to charge them to stop teaching different teaching. I want you to tell them to stop. So what, what, is, what does the elder do? Hey, let's talk about what, you're, what you just said. Let's talk about what you're thinking. Let's talk about what you're saying and why you're saying it. Let's talk about this thing. Let's get to the bottom of where the error is. And all we need is the Bible. We don't need anything else but the word of God to establish what is error or truth. And I promise you there's a New Testament letter that will establish or deny any doctrinal position that exists in the world. There's a New Testament letter in and of itself that can fix it all. We don't have to, we do not have to establish any other source. Now, in the context of hobbyists, in the context of, you know, expressing and expanding our ideas of history and where we've come to get this is called anthropology we can come together and start to learn and grow and and and, and think about other things but when we're correcting the church we correct the church according to the scripture so paul says timothy charges these people not to teach different doctrine see how sterile this sounds already but I want to hear about Christ. I want to hear about the gospel. We know the gospel, and we'll get to the gospel. The gospel is the root of all this. But why do we ignore this teaching? And the reason that so many Christians are in such turmoil today is because they ignore the Scripture. Everybody who is born of God ought to be able to give a basic gospel in their own language. Everybody who is in the faith ought to be able to have, without any definitions or a thesaurus or a dictionary whatsoever, ought to be able to articulate what they've read in the Gospel of John or in Paul's teaching to the church of Ephesus, just to name just simple places, one gospel, one letter, and ought to be able to express some sense of the gospel in their own words. 
But I think most Christians are copy-pastes. They have this mindset that they don't know what the gospel is, but they've heard something that they agree with, and so they hold on to it. They memorize it. And they walk around in circles who have a specific identity, and then they memorize that ideology or that theological position of these people. And they all seem to be in the same camp, but yet when it comes to the Bible and what it teaches to know and then do, there's a problem. You see, it starts to rub. And beloved, the Bible is going to rub our flesh. It's going to rub it in the wrong way. It's going to rub against the grain. It's going to burn. It's going to do things that our flesh doesn't like, but at the same time, it is going to be a salve for our rub. It's going to be medicine for our illness. It's going to be refreshment to our thirst. So don't teach any different doctrine. I'll get into that in the weeks to come because Paul starts to explain it. And we can speculate or we can just take it for face value. We don't need to dig too much into what the English ideology or the 20, 2022 understanding of philosophy and myths and the use of the law is. Let's just understand what was going on that day. How do we know what's going on that day? We've got the book of Hebrews. We've got the book of Romans. And we've, got, we've got Dr. Luke's exposition of the Acts of the Apostles. So we know what was going on. We know what the Jews were up to. We know what the Judaizers were up to. We don't have to know history to understand Scripture. Scripture teaches us just enough history to help us understand what's being taught. So don't teach any other type of teaching. This role is part of the manifold, listen to me, the manifold responsibility of the elder in the scope of keeping order and overseeing the unity of the body in doctrine, in practice, in attitude, in love, etc. And it's all or none. Beloved, you can't be the elder of a church and be all about eschatology. You can't be the elder of the church and be all about Bible study. You can't be the elder of a church and only want to preach out of John's writings. You gotta preach other stuff. You gotta teach what's called the full counsel of the scripture. I can't just go to Romans 9 and preach it every week. Because Romans 9 makes zero sense without the first eight chapters. But yeah, that's what we do, isn't it? I've never gone to a movie, bought a ticket, however many hundreds of dollars those cost now. No, that's the popcorn. Uh, I've never gone to a movie and waited an hour and a half to go in. I don't really want to see anything in the last five minutes. Why do we read the Bible that way? Because it's been parsed out in history with some chapters and verses. So it makes it easier. Oh, this. So we read it like a fortune cookie. We read it like I came to the conclusion many, many years ago, like a vitamin box. We've segmented the Bible in a way that uh, this is for this and this is for this. And we love the, you know, we love the Thompson Chain reference Bibles, right? I mean, you got this much Bible text and this many references. We love the study Bibles, but we don't like to study our Bible. We don't like to reference Paul's writing to Timothy to Paul's writing to the church of Galatia. We don't know what Paul taught the Romans because we haven't read it, but we know Romans 1. We know Romans 3. Some of us who are really in the Old Testament know Romans 4 and 5. And if we're Calvinistic or whatever or Reformed or whatever your historical moniker might be, which I think is unnecessary, we love Romans 9. If we're Baptist, 
We love it all. <laughs> we love all of things of God. But even then, we're not reading it. I mean, let's ask our question. How many of us read the letter of 1 Timothy every week? You see? We're, we're learning this letter. And beloved, you're not going to really grasp it if you're not reading it. I read it every day. Why? Because I have to. Because I forget what I did this morning when I got here. I was looking for my coffee. I left it in the truck. I mean, what kind of a... That, that's brain damage. You don't leave coffee. You know it's at the end when you're leaving your coffee. <laughs> See? All jokes aside, beloved, we have to hold fast to the Scripture. And in doing so, what I'm about to teach you out of this is the easy, surface-level understanding of what Paul is simply saying. Let's listen to it. As I urge you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge, and listen carefully, certain individuals not to teach any different teaching, nor to devote themselves to myths and English genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. Okay? What is he saying there? It's real simple. Paul is tactfully teaching to tell the elders or to tell those people in the congregation who are so enjoying all these diverse teachings and attitudes and distinctions and all these things to stop. And he's also not just saying stop teaching this, which is step one, that we may inquire and understand what's truly taking place because we're merciful, patient, loving, kind, gentle, self-controlled, not fearful, not anxious, not upset, not even a little bit disturbed. Because being a little bit disturbed is not a fruit of the Spirit of God. I don't see that over there. For the fruit of the Spirit is kindness, being disturbed, a little frustrated, a little cranky, and absolutely. And don't stab people, but show them the knife. I mean, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> Where did that even come from? I'm telling you, folks, it's a lot exposed up here. <laughs> I'm sorry. But simply saying, Paul is saying certain individuals. Who are these individuals? I'm willing to bet there were probably 40 people, maybe 50, in a city the size of Ephesus with two firecrackers like Hermie and Alex. They made a mess of things. And it was running rampant. And people were going crazy. And people were dividing. And people were upset that they were even around. And Paul doesn't name anybody until he gets to them. Because Paul says certain individuals. Why didn't he just name the whole list? Because the point is not to destroy them. The point is to reconcile them. That's mercy. They were in a time of need. They were in a time of error. They were in a time of sin. You have, sin, you have mercy in your time of need. You have grace in your time of temptation. Oh no, but those who have the seed of the essence of the divine mind. know Not to care about to be careful. For years, everywhere I am, there's always someone who knows the heart of a man. And they know that they know it. To me, that is person is claiming to be God. Well, you know their heart by what they say. Oh, really? 
You'll know their affections. You'll know their temperament. you know their attitude. You won't know if they're born again. They confess to be a brother in Christ. Paul takes that absolutely to the bank. And church discipline mercifully and patiently corrects it, fleshes out. And even when they are removed from the fellowship, we pray for our brother and sister who has been removed to be reconciled unto God by being reconciled unto the relationships of the body of Christ. That's what Paul tells Timothy, put away childish things. Because the whole world is like a preschool playground. And when the kid doesn't get its way, doesn't get its next turn, you know, back in the slides when I was a kid, the slides were like 70 feet tall, made out of stainless steel. They waxed them every morning, you know, buffed them down. And just a ladder. No railings, no tether, no nothing. I mean, and all the kids in the playground lined up, and you had this one guy, let's call him Bob, and he was always ready to get to the top. And when he had his slide, it was his turn to slide, and there were 16, 17 more kids now to go. He shoves his way back up to the front. And then what the teacher does when he starts to go down is just sort of pull his foot. That's what the world's like. We don't get our way. We don't get our turn. We don't get our voice. We throw a tantrum. We shove people. We shove ourselves in front of the responsible way of doing things. We... We do that in our flesh, and when, and when we do it, we're not shoving others around the playground. We're actually shoving Christ out of the way when we're pushing the Word of God and its authority and its sufficiency to the yeah, but column. So certain individuals, Paul is exhorting mercifully. He's exhorting here by not naming them. He's showing mercy by not naming them. Because there is a grave evil when error in the church is made into a spectacle. There's a grave evil when people make a lifestyle of showing all the false teachings. Because you know what they're doing? They are sharing what they love most. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Beloved, you will share what you love most. Sharing the antithesis of Christ is not Christ. Philosophically, we can argue for the place of it according to the measure of which the apostles would express it, according to the need of the local assembly. I have five children and a grandchild, see? And when they turned three, I didn't line them all up and say, I'm going to tell you about all the bad things that have ever happened in the world. Let me tell you about bad people with white vans and candies and puppies. Let me tell you what happened to the kid across the street. Let me tell you, no, don't, I mean, we don't do that. We don't give a list of errors that are found in the world and tell our children. When we're teaching them how to drive, we don't show them all 29 of the wrong ways to make a left turn. We show them how to make a left turn. And we show them how to make a left turn. And we show them how to make a left turn. And when they don't do it the way we show them, they know they're wrong because <laughs> they've learned the truth. So Paul is not emphasizing the error or the people who are causing the error. He's emphasizing the truth, and he's doing so because that is what God commands the elders of the church to do. And he commands the people of the church to be busy with working with their hands and serving each other and being quiet. Certain individuals. It is sinful to make a spectacle of error 
because it puts it before Christ. And it blasphemes the gracious, merciful fatherhood of God in Jesus. But what is he telling them to stop? He said, stop teaching different doctrines. Stop teaching different teachings. These guys are teaching a different teaching. They're exposing the church to external ideologies and philosophies that disrupt the unity of the body. That's what was happening. Paul was mad in Galatia because they were disrupting the joy and the unity of the gospel. Not because these knuckleheads were teaching circumcision, because they were convincing others to do it. Because here's the one thing, somebody comes along selling garbage out of the back of a truck and you're not interested in garbage, just let him go on. We've learned what to do in those circumstances with 1 John. Just quit giving them a platform. But see, the problem now is that everybody is a platform. You're a platform. We're all influencers. We influence everything around us. With a snap, I mean, you changed your picture this week on a, a social media thing. You don't even remember that you did it. And 600 people go, oh, I love that dress you're wearing. I love that cat you got. What cat? <laughs> I forgot I had that picture. I mean, isn't that how we relate to one another now? We don't say, have you talked to John and heard what's going on in his life? He said, did you see what John put on Facebook? We don't care about John. We don't talk to John. We're just nosy. That's a busybody. See? And, and that's not the way intimacy works. It's not, God is not ordained gospel ministry on social media. It's not the church. And we may have people that we dearly love, that we have real life intimacy with, who are submissive to the word of God, who watch our teaching and listen to our teaching, but they know the difference and the effectiveness of life together. Beloved, this is where the rubber hits the road when we're together and when the microphone is over and the praying and the praise is over, we actually are able to make application in real life. Because if it didn't matter, then we could all stay home. Certain individuals are teaching something different than what you're supposed to be teaching. They're teaching the church and they're disrupting the unity of the body. They're offering opinions and interpretations and they're imposing their ideology or their theology or their doctrine on the life of others in the church. Have you ever had that experience? We're talking about the gospel and everything is focused on the gospel and everybody's together with the right truth of Christ and all the stuff. I almost said together for the gospel. That would have got me hanged. Uh, you know, and, and, and all sorts of things. But... And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone comes up with an ulterior ideology and wants, to express, wants you to express your opinion on something you've never thought about. And then they, they charge you demonic because you answer wrongly. Oh my goodness! Beloved, that's not of God. And elders patiently correct that. What happens when people like the preaching but don't want to be shepherded? They leave. 100% of the time. That's the reason every person, other than those who were looking for a youth ministry, every person has left our church. You know, our youth ministry is that our youth are here. They can do what they want to do. They can go play games, do kung fu, go to the firing range. It doesn't matter. 
We don't have to entice them, you see. But people leave because they don't want to be shepherded. They don't want to be applied. They don't want the doctrine of Christ to be applied to their lives. You're not telling me what to do. And some of them are so wise with that divine eye that they actually know sometimes that the elders of certain churches are reprobates so that they don't have to listen to them. But the Bible doesn't even say that you don't have to listen to the reprobates. Jesus says, listen to the Pharisees and obey what they teach you, boy. Just because they're gone... Paul said to the church of Philippi, these people who are charlatans who are preaching my gospel, they've mimicked my, they don't know it, they're just mimicking it. But they're mimicking it perfectly, let them keep preaching. We know they're making bank on it, who cares? The gospel they preach is right, let them preach. That's crazy, isn't it? Would that fly today? No, you put a J in front of Jesus with some people, they'll crucify you on Twitter. There was no J in the original text. Okay, ease us then. <laughs> See, that's silliness. And we don't want to make fun of people's disturbances. I don't want to call them convictions. Those are disturbances. But we don't cater to them. We have to be tactful. We don't allow other people to impose their interpretation or their doctrinal distinctions upon the church. Paul is tactful. Paul is patient. Out of these people, certain individuals, there are two that I believe were the ringleaders, and that is Hymenius and Alexander. And they had refused all manner of patient mercy. They had refused all manner of biblical correction, and they were wrecking the church. How were they doing it? They wouldn't stop. See, the ones who won't stop are the divisive ones. The ones who won't follow the order of Scripture are the ones who are dividing the body. Not the ones who bring, not always the ones who bring the error in. So we don't know if they were the ones who started it, but we know they were the ones who were stirring it. And it is always gossip to speak ill of someone in any way and they're not in the earshot of it. And that by definition, according to Peter, the apostle of Christ, is murder. God doesn't need the details in order for us to pray. We don't have to inform his heart and his ears of what's truly going on in the lives of his people by telling him all the details so that the people in the prayer meeting can hear us. I've seen a lot of damage done in that. Paul is tactful and patient. These men had refused all manner of mercy and they wrecked the church. They destroyed their faith, he says. They've abandoned the assembly, refused the teaching of Christ, ignored the advice of the elders, rebuked the authority of the apostles. But yet, even so, Paul treated them as brothers. In 2 Thessalonians, when Paul's talking about the busybodies and what they're doing and always in everybody's stuff and what they should be doing, he says what? He says, warn them as a brother. Do not regard them as an enemy. Merciful. So Paul's desire is forgiving acceptance of these two men included in the group of certain individuals. After all, these men had already been excluded from the lives of the believers. And until they come back with the heart of learning and correction, evidenced by them not teaching against the apostles' teaching, they were not to be embraced. Many were led astray to disunity and divorce, yet these two men were the leaders, in my mind, attempting to stir it all up. They went after these things 
and contacted and connected others on behalf of their ideas and teachings. They stirred fear in the hearts of the church. But they were not able to rightly divide the simple truth of what Paul was telling them to do, much less the weightier issues of the law. These wannabe teachers were unskilled in the scripture, ignorant of what was required concerning instructing others in the faith, unqualified to do so, uncalled to do so. They knew things, but they were unwilling to be taught how to teach them, how to be tactful, how to be godly, how to give oversight and care and mercy and tenderness to the church. Yet they would not heed the warnings of these leaders, of Paul and the other apostles and the elders of Ephesus. They wouldn't heed the warnings because in their, quote, humble arrogance, they wanted to teach others what they knew. Yet Paul says they knew nothing. And what they had was a myopic nonsense that is a different doctrine. Paul's desire here is to put it all back together in order. So that the body would walk in unity. He makes no judgment of these men except that what they're doing is sinful. He doesn't say they're lost, but rather they're disobedient children acting stupid. Pitching a fit on the playground because they want a quicker turn on the slide. They want to be heard. And they do it in the name of, this is the truth of Christ. Like Paul in Galatia. He says to them, what has changed? Why have you changed what you have learned by the grace of Jesus Christ to another gospel which is no gospel? Why? He was merciful to them. He was concerned for them. So Paul says to the elders of, to the elder Timothy, charge them to stop teaching this stuff, to stop talking. And secondly, verse 4, he says what? I lost, I lost verse 4. Nor to devote themselves to myths and English genealogies. Now we're not going to parse out the difference between myths and English genealogies. We understand that there's a historical narrative that goes all over the place that the Jews were good at what? They were good at creating stories. They were good at establishing uh, anecdotes and, and establishing new rules and regulations and things. And the, the history shows it from the Mishnah all the way even to the, you know, the, the, the consumption of Moses and, and all these other tight writings that history has proven to us. There are a lot of things. And so we see it today in a lot of the cults and a lot of the Hebrew cults and things. There's always some mystical excitement about finding something from antiquity that's mysterious. Yet the scripture says that the apostles have been stewards of the, what? Of the mysteries of God. So teach them to stop what they're saying and to stop thinking this way. So you have to stop the behavior first so that you can keep unity. Then you take, as an elder, patience to correct others to get to the bottom of why people think that way. Yet, sometimes the church can't even manage its affairs because, you know, people think it, they take it upon themselves to destroy the possibility of reconciliation. Let's go back to preschool. A kid has an accident in his pants. He's pooped in his pants. And a good teacher will, hey, Bobby, you pitched a fit at the playground and you deserve to be pushed off, but I'm going to treat you kindly. I know there's, you've got a problem. Hey, let's walk back here and, and get your mom to come and help you. Versus, ooh, somebody pooed. I mean, 
And then the whole classroom mocks Bobby till he graduates high school. It's wicked. Nor devote themselves to myths and English genealogies which promote speculation, not solidarity in truth. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And I'm going to finish here. And Well, I'm going to pause here and we'll finish up <laughs> next week. But see, here in verse 4 we have this exhortation to the elder to charge certain individuals to stop teaching and to stop thinking in a certain way. Myths and genealogies, the phrase expressly references humanistic thinking, historical thinking, philosophical thinking. And sometimes these things walk with Scripture, but they all are not insufficient for the purpose of growing the believer. And as we see here in Ephesus, what happens is someone comes with an idea, and then that idea grows some thinking, and that thinking grows some error, and that error grows like gangrene. And beloved, we are easy to bend toward the option of error. And we are easy to bend into the space of division. Much can be said, as I've already mentioned, about Jewish ideas and writings and stories and legal positions and theological definitions. But Paul says these things are not to be a part of the assembly. They're not to be taught to the church. These outside things and secondary sources and these heretical ideas and understandings, these are not the bread and butter of the church. They don't build the church up in stewardship. See, because God has called the, the elders of the church to be stewards of the body. I may be your pastor, but I am not your boss. I don't own you. I'm a steward of God's people to teach them the wonders of His mercy, the glory of His name. And so I don't believe that the Scripture would give any warrant whatsoever for anybody to debate and to deliberate on defining terms and arguing against systematized expressions of exposition, etc., etc., and so forth, I think we can learn together through the teaching of Scripture and through life interacting together around what we've learned. And so when these teachings on these teachings are devoid of application, or worse, especially those who refuse to enfold clear teaching of instruction in its handling, they become, in my opinion, demonic springboards to division. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that anybody who's teaching theologically who refuses to hear be taught pragmatically this is a springboard into the demonic. We learn the things of Christ and then the question is now what? What difference does it make? To what end? But see we've got individuals who are individually inspired to be the body of Christ all by themselves, only with others who share their specific distinctions in the context of their ideologies, with no regard to God's promise that He will grow His people through His, through his church, through His Word. And I don't... I have no... Sympathy for even, no matter the nature of the origin of the condition of the truth that may be argued from the construction of people and their attitudes and their false teaching or their concerns, I have no sympathy when they refuse the, the instruction of Scripture. None. 
People come and they ask for what? They ask you for help. They ask you for counsel. I'm having a problem. Can you help me? And their face is all bloody and their teeth, one of their teeth are missing. Their lips all swole up. What happened? I just keep falling hitting my face. Every seven or eight steps, I just fall hit my face. I just fall hit my face. And you look them over and they've got shoestrings this long and they're all untied. See, watch. And they fall, trip over the shoestrings and bust their face. And you say, hey, 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 brother, just tie your shoe. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> you know? And then they keep looking until they find somebody and say, you know why you're hitting your face? Because the person telling you to tie your shoes pushed you down. And so on and so forth. And the next thing you know, what happens? Everybody's upset about something. Beloved, everybody was upset about something in Ephesus too. And Paul's response was, clearly teach the truth. Teach them not to teach anything but the truth. And teach them to think differently about the truth. Because elders, beloved pastors, cannot examine and respond to circumstances according to our own wisdom and our own desires. We must follow as stewards the instruction found in Scripture. Paul says that, that we are stewards. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if I do my own will, I have a reward. But if not my will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. For an overseer, as we find in Titus 1, as God's steward must be above reproach. What's that reproach? Not following Scripture. Not submitting to the instruction of the apostles. Must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunk or violent or greedy for gain. 1 Corinthians 4, the Scriptures teaches that elders are stewards of God's mysteries revealed inclusive of the life of the church and her corrective unity and the reconciliation according to the promises of Christ, not the proclivities and the prerogatives of man. We don't cower to what human beings want and think they need. We serve only that which the Scripture teaches and first and last is Christ and Him crucified. According to the Scriptures, we teach the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Because we're at peace with God by grace. And we've received mercy. And now we have the mind of Christ in our dealings with others. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now there's a lot here. We'll unpack it all in more depth next week. But so that we will have meat to walk on and live on over the next few days we need to understand that the nature of false teachers and their errors and theological division exists so that God will be seen as faithful in unifying his people. Paul says that heresies must be among you. So God ordained. We sang that this morning too. The good stuff, the joy, and the pain all come from above. Well, that is a difficult lesson that we know instinctively, we know, we know academically, we know spiritually, but it is hard to rest in it. It is hard to rest in knowing that all of our pain is a gift from our Father. <laughs> oh, thanks, Dad. You see? It would be like our dad giving us a box for Christmas and his fist was in it. We took the 
hand off and poof, look at there, gotcha. What'd you do that for? You didn't tie your shoes, son. I want to remind you what it feels like. And that's not how our Father works, is it? He works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things work out for good. So even when the road is paved with pain, the end result is glory. And our eyes are on the one who is our life, Jesus the Christ. And the essence of that is love. John would say in his first epistle, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 8, that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We're not troubled, we're not fearful, we're not judgmental when we're walking in the Spirit, we're not hateful. Christ is our everything. And we have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, and from those things, our life together flows. From those things, our, our ministry flows. From those things, when the bad comes, we correct one another from those things. From Christ. The truth of Christ is given to His people by faith. And we are resting. And we are at peace and have received mercy. This faith rests, beloved, with assurance and with confidence in the conscience that God's promises, what is that conscience? That God's promises as reported in Christ, that's the gospel, are firm and fast and have full effect. So elders then, our charge is to teach the word from this love that comes from these conditions that God has effectuated in his children. And the body listens from this love because of whose we are. And it's because that's how we have learned Christ. We haven't learned Christ in fear. We haven't learned Christ in opposition. We don't learn Christ from the antithesis. We don't learn Christ through the, through the error. We learn Christ in love. And so we are at peace. And we're striving to rest in that peace. We're striving for unity. Not outside the Scripture, but within the Scripture. And the new birth yields the heart and mind to the teaching of the instruction of the apostles. Simply. And it's all of grace. So the sheep of Christ who are walking in the Spirit are not looking for other or further ways to divide and to be separate, but rather they look to the only one who brings them together in righteousness. Who is that? Jesus Christ. The good news is God's love for His people and that He forgives them in Christ Jesus, who stood in their place, God is in the business of salvation, and He does with His grace as He sees fit. And we live as beneficiaries of mercy. And beloved, we must show it. Christ. Christ. John would write in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I believe Paul could reiterate that here to Timothy and to the people that he oversaw. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of those in the world. And by this we have come to know Him. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments, if we hold by faith to His promises. 
Because whoever says, I know him, but does not do this is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever does keep the word of Christ, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, beloved, I can say that I'm a Christian, and I can literally be born again, but being a Christian is following Christ. A lot of unconverted people walk as Christians. And a lot of converted people walk as pagans. <laughs> In what way? They don't love. They don't love anybody. They say they love Christ. But beloved, we can't show our love for Christ unless we love each other. That's the only way to do it. And if you want to know my position on what John is teaching there, just go back. I preached the whole letter. God is teaching us. God is teaching us. And He is showing us and He is entrusting us with this gospel. And we are at peace. So beloved, as we continue in this letter, I want you to know that, 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 that there is nothing that can change about that. And there's a lot that's going to change for all of us in the months to come. Some of us may not be here. We may be gone to glory. Some of us may get sick. Some of our congregation may decide they're not going to listen to the word and they may leave. Some people may even say one day that they never did believe. Beloved, we're still at peace. Don't let it rock us. Christ died to make us His righteousness justifying us before the Father. That means we are right. We're in a right place. And it can never be changed. Christ has finished the work of redemption. And beloved, that is our only anchor. But together, we can help tether one another to the anchor of this gospel truth as we walk through fire. As we walk through fire. But separate, we're like a lamb in the woods in the midst of a pack of wolves. So as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, let's remember what our Savior has done. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this truth. And Lord, I just pray that you would give me focus as I continue to teach. It's very difficult right now for, for us all to, to think and to focus. But Father, we know that your word is true. So help us to, to read it every day and to be intimate with the pages of Scripture and that in doing so, Lord, your Spirit will teach us great things about who you are and what Christ has done. And Father, remind us in every practical sense about the incredible practical reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That we would never lose sight of it. That we would never think that our transformed lives are, uh, are, are a hope or, Father, that the lack thereof is our demise, but, Lord, that we are righteous and sanctified forever in Christ Jesus and nothing shall snatch us out of your hands. But, Lord, the world that we live in is absolutely horrendous. And it hurts. And it's one thing after another. And, Lord, the season that we are in now is to teach us to be dependent upon you. So, Lord, we bring with joy this gift and we pray for our brothers and sisters, those who are in the faith, those who have gone astray, those who are struggling. 
those whose marriages are destroyed, those who are still dealing with COVID, Father, those who have lost everything, or those who are just scared of everything. We pray for them. Father, I pray for the elder brothers with me that we would be committed to doing that which we are commanded to do, that we would be patient with your people. Lord, that we would be patient with each other, that we would endure to press into the cross and into the gospel and into Christ and into the knowledge of the truth so that we would be prepared to love one another effectively and to give wise counsel according to you and your word, not according to tradition or our own philosophies. And that we would be patient with those who doubt and we would be patient with those who are in error and that we would rejoice when we see reconciliation and that we would weep but also have joy when we see things go bad. And so as we continue to worship today, Father, we thank you for this comfort. We thank you, Lord, that though our time is always set, Lord, there will be a day when it will be timeless and we will sit before you. Never to move, always to learn and to see and to glory in your righteousness, in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.